Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this earth, not in this world. On Saturday 20th of October, Justin Moat taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Justin looks at the topic of suffering. Justin is a former head of the Northwest Partnership Ministry Trainee Course and a regular speaker on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. Why don't I pray? Our loving Heavenly Father, we can't think of anything uh, better to do than spend uh, a morning in the company of your people around your word, with your spirit amongst us. We count it an absolute joy to be able to do what we do. We recognise many parts of the world it would be impossible to do a morning like this. We are very grateful for the privileges that we have. We pray now as we continue to think about this whole issue of uh, suffering that you'd be pleased to help us think wisely and in line with your word. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. What do you do when the Bible doesn't answer every question that you have? There's some answers. Um, You have to accept that there are some secret things. One of the things that ultimately, if God were to answer Job's questions, the danger is that Job might start thinking that he becomes like God and knows everything. And part of our creatureliness is that we aren't people who know everything. So Deuteronomy chapter 29 and uh, verse 29, which is the great get-out line uh, for, um, for answering questions. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. In other words, it's acknowledging God has revealed things to us, but he hasn't revealed everything to us. And that keeps us humble. It keeps us creatures. But we must also accept the sufficiency of Scripture, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, everything we need to know to live as God's people in this world, he has told us. How kind of him. So what we're going to do for the next 50 minutes is we're going to go on a journey through the whole of the Bible. This is quite a useful tool, by the way, of uh, thinking about any particular topic, is to think about what they, uh, you learn about the topic in the different eras of, uh, of the Bible history. So we're going to think about uh, creation, then we'll think about fall, we'll think about Israel's history um, in the rest of the Old Testament, we'll think about the coming of Jesus, and then we'll think about the new creation. And if you go through those five stages, which are just big broad brushstroke stages of the whole of human history, if you go through those and ask, what does that section teach me about my topic, what does this section, you'll actually get a decent overview of the whole, and we'll uh, come to the end by answering the question, why does a good God allow suffering, which I assume you've heard somebody ask you at some, some point, point. if you haven't, they will at some point. So it's good to have an answer for it, isn't it? And there is an answer. And it's very short. So that keeps you awake for the next, <laughs> next few minutes. 
What do we learn about suffering at creation? Creation, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Well, a repeated phrase that comes through Genesis uh, 1 is that it was good. It was good. And at the end of chapter 1 and verse 31, in my NIV, it translates, it was very good. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I know a bit of Hebrew, but I'm not a scholar. But the Hebrew scholars say that that is a very English under translation. It was very good. It's the kind of thing you say with a child's pictures, isn't it? Oh, that's very good, dear. That's very good. And it actually just means it's average. <laughs> but when the NIV translates, it was very good, it actually means something more like it was flipping marvellous. It was gobsmackingly brilliant. You kind of big it up. It was very good. And indeed, if you know the way that the creation story is written, you'll know that you get evening and morning on the six days that things are made, on the six days that things are created. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the Sabbath day, seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he Sabbathed. He rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. It doesn't mean he was inactive. He'd finished the creating work that he had been doing. And notice that there's no mention of evening and morning on the seventh day. It's as if the seventh day, if it wasn't for what we'd read in chapter 3, if it wasn't for what happens next, that seventh day would have been, that, would it, that was it, it would go on. And it's blessed. That word blessed is a big uh, word in the Bible. It doesn't just mean God set it apart. It means he declared that to be good. It means he declared it to be right. Later on in the Bible, you may know that uh, Paul will use the word blessed and righteousness interchangeably in Romans uh, 4. In other words... The seventh day was absolutely righteous, absolutely right. Everything is good. Of course, there's a surprise when you come to the account in chapter 2 that there is something that's not good. It's not good for a man to be alone. And so God addresses the one thing that isn't good, and that's man being on his own. And the Lord makes a suitable helper for him. None of the animals are adequate. Adam is brought each before him to name that must have been great fun mustn't it imagine naming all the animals duck bill platypus what fun that would have been but no suitable helper was uh, found for him and so under divine uh, anesthetic divine surgery takes place and god creates the woman and then and then we get to the end of chapter two and we discover that not only have we got a perfect world We've got a man and a woman who were both naked and they felt no shame. Now that means more than they were nude. It means that they had no shame before one another. It means they had nothing to cover up, literally. Nothing to hide. No secrets. It's a picture of beauty of people in relationship with each other. In relationship with the living God who walked in the garden. So they can see God face to face. They can see each other and have no shame. And they need fear nothing from the creation at all. And it's a beautiful picture. But there is an explicit warning that comes. 
In Genesis 2.15, they are told that they are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You can have peaches, plums, pomegranates, pears, you can have any. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. There's the warning. It's not God being mean. There's only one tree they are not allowed to eat from, out of all the trees they can. And they're warned that the beauty of Genesis 1 and 2 will be lost. They will die if they eat of that excuse me, eat of that uh, tree. So God's generous permission, any tree, single prohibition, and the explicit warning, you will die. And so a good question to ask is why have that tree in the garden and um, why create Adam and Eve with the capacity to disobey? And the answer is because God is creating people, not robots. He's creating people who he wants to be in relationship with him, a relationship that's love. And love is defined in the Bible in regards to our relationship towards God. Well, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and John 15. In other words, we can't love God if we don't have the capacity not to love him. Does that make sense? It is not love if all you can do is love. That's not love. love Love is only love when we have freedom not to love. When we can choose not to love. God wants them to love him by obeying this single commandment. They're not robots. They are real people. They've been made in the likeness of God. Now the irony, when we come to the second stage in the Old Testament, which is Genesis uh, 3, really to Genesis uh, chapter uh, 11... The tragedy, when you come to chapter 3, is what the snake, who's introduced without any explanation. Now, the serpent was more crafty. You have to read elsewhere for little clues of what's happened, that there can be a crafty snake, the great serpent, the Satan himself. And he comes and tempts Eve. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Adam has taught Eve pretty well. She wasn't around when the command was given. But she's got the gist of it in verses 2 and 3. And now Satan contradicts what God has said. God said, you will surely die. And the snake says, you will not surely die. Who's telling the truth? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who will she believe? Will she believe the living God who's been her creator? Or will she believe the serpent? The serpent has a reason why God might have uh, told a lie. Four, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, there's an irony there because they're already as like God as God intended them to be, created in his image. Three times that phrase comes in chapter one. We are, God who created her as like God as he intended humans to be. In what way will he be like God, knowing good and evil? 
Well, in what way does God know good and evil in chapters 1 and 2? It's not that he's experienced evil. It's not that he's done evil. It's rather he's defined it. And what the snake is promising the woman is you can live independently of God. You can make up your own rules. You're a big grown-up girl. You don't want to have someone in authority over you. Why not decide for yourself what's right and wrong? (laughs) And there are no consequences. It doesn't matter. You're not going to die. That's a lie from God. Because he doesn't want you to be making decisions for yourself. He wants you to be obeying his commands. Well, who will she trust? Who's she going to obey? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, it wasn't like Snow White's apple. It wasn't poisonous. What made it wrong was not because it was in itself harmful. What made it wrong was because God had said don't do it. So it was pleasing to the eye. It was good for food. So she takes some and ate it. And as we mentioned before, she also gave some to her, hus- her, to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Well, we've just seen the creation relationships all turned upside down. Adam and Eve were created, Adam first, and then Eve, and then together to rule the creation. And what have you got? You've got a creature ruling the woman who's leading her husband. It's all gone topsy-turvy and upside down. And the consequences, the consequences are disastrous. Notice what the first one is. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realised they were naked and now the cover-up begins. In other words, their relationships are distorted and going to be distorted from now on. Their relationship with the living God is distorted. So when the Lord God walks in the, in the cool of the day, where are you? I heard, I was afraid when we weren't before, Adam wasn't before. I hid. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Oh Lord God, I have been such a fool. Is there any way you can forgive me? Is there any way back? Well, that's not what he says. He actually blames God, do you notice? The woman you put here with me. That's actually your fault. So the cover-up in terms of relationship between the man and God has begun. Then he says to the woman, what is it you've done? Well, maybe she'll be a bit better than Adam. And she'll say, no, 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 I've done something awful. And, and I've, I've involved Adam in it too. It's been dreadful. How could I possibly have done that? No, not my fault. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And then notice what happens. The animals are now cursed. So to the snake, he now addresses the three characters in the drama in the same order that they appear in the drama at the beginning of chapter three. First, he curses the animals. Cursed are you above all livestock. Yes, there's a special curse on, on the snake, but cursed are you above all livestock. It's all livestock that is cursed. And from this moment on, we cannot live with all the creatures. Where do we put tigers? 
You don't have them as pets, do you? Do you know, uh, people have tried it consistently. You know, taken a cub from birth, fed it on milk, um, and had it play in the house. And do you know what has happened every single time? It, 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 eats the, it eats the owner. You cannot tame a tiger. Yeah, what a silly book. I used to read a book for my children about a tiger coming for tea. Yeah, what is that book about? That is the most dangerous thing you could have is a tiger coming for tea. I, I, we do give, give our kids nonsenses, don't we? But anyway, that's... The word curse is exactly the opposite of the word blessed. There's something now drastically wrong in the creation. To the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. The thing that is most uniquely female is now going to be difficult. As I said, I've been present at four births. I saw all my children being born, and it was painful. For my wife as well. (laughs) Notice, Notice verse 16b. Your desire will be for your husband. Now, you could read that out of context and think that's a positive thing. I rather like it if my wife's desire is for me. That is very negative. Your desire will be for your husband. Hebrew word desire actually only comes three times in the whole of the Bible. And the next time it comes in chapter 4 and verse 7 where the Lord says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you. Can you feel the negativeness of that? It desires, it wants to take control of. You'll want to take control of your husband. What will he do? Well, they were created together to rule the creation, but now he's going to rule her, dominate her. This is about the fracturing of human relationships. And then the ground becomes... Painful and toil. Cursed is the ground, and it's going to be hard work to produce food. The, um, the stinging nettles are growing in the garden. And then, and then they're cast out of the garden into this cursed world. They must be cast out of the garden because it's a place where God is, and God will not have them live now in relationship with him as they were. And because there's another tree in the garden. There's another tree called the tree of life. And if they were able to get to the tree of life, they could eat of it and live forever. But God said, you're going to die. So they, they have to be guarded out from, or sent out from the garden, the guarded, garden guarded, so that they can't go back in. All the creation relationships have now been... been um, been distorted and from now on you're going to see the evidences of suffering which will be either through the sinfulness of man or through the received judgment of God the very next chapter what happens well you you can't get a bigger sin really than murdering your brother can you that is the sinfulness of man expressed there in chapter three And under the judgment of God, living in a cursed world. And pretty well all the suffering that you and I experience actually come from those two things. Either we are the recipient of the sinfulness of man, or we are living in a cursed world. 
But, but actually, Paul's, Paul, uh, hold this question right till the end. They don't die immediately. Adam lives till he's 930 years old. So he has a decent innings. 930. And they're not entirely abandoned of every blessing. So chapter 4, verse 1, Adam lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. In other words, humankind is continuing and is seen as a blessing. And Adam and Eve's relationship is distorted, but they're still married. So it's not everything's been obliterated, but everything is cursed. Everything is distorted from now on. And you see the normality of death in chapter 5 with the genealogy that comes through uh, Seth and the repeated line at each paragraph, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. Of course, it flags up a slightly odd one with this chap Enoch, who doesn't die. He's just taken. And Hebrews 11 picks up that he didn't experience death. It makes you ask the question, how is it possible for someone to escape death when there's no suggestion that Enoch is less sinful than anyone else though we are told that he walked with God which seems to be the reason that he is no more and you have to think what does it mean walking with God but everyone else they die they die they die and that is still the universal human statistic isn't it we all die yep Um, uh, That is such a good question. Um, And scholars have have debated for ages, ever ever since really, working out was there a pattern of death in the garden? Were there seasons? If there were were seasons, they would have known something of the experience of of some some death. But humans weren't going to die. But in the end, I don't think we know the answer. Uh, the reason I do believe in, in, in the real historicity of Adam and Eve, without us getting into a whole debate about creation, <clears throat> but I believe in a, in, in a real Adam because, because, um, because the New Testament does. And, and one of the things that, that happens, if we might, should we just notice, it's not just the Enoch who's different in chapter 5. <clears throat> You're told... And verse 3, when Adam lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness. So mankind is now both in the likeness of God and in the likeness of Adam, which is where the beginnings of the doctrine of um, original sin comes, that we believe that sinfulness has been passed down, that we all have a bias towards sin. Inherited. It's why then theologically... For another day, the virgin birth is so important to us because it's not transmitted to Jesus. He does not have a sinful nature. He's not born with this predeterminedness uh, to, to uh, sin. But everyone 
apart from Jesus, is. We're in the image of Adam and in the image of God, distorted image of God now, but in the image uh, of Adam. Now, because the New Testament says that because Adam sinned and died, this is Romans 5.12, Adam sinned and died, and therefore all sin and die, Paul uses that argument to say that if the act of Adam can have an impact on all of us, that means it's possible for the act of Jesus to have an impact on us. How is it possible for one man's sin to affect us all? That's the story of Adam. How is it possible for one man's death to affect the many? It's because you could, we believe in that, um, that things can be transferable through generations or through beyond one person. So I think I do have to believe in a literal um, uh, Adam and Eve. Yeah. We won't do anything on the story of the flood, but that's a, a story where, um, where it looks like God's uh, going to recreate, but it's not. Uh, nowhere is as sinful as anyone else. It's uh, very well told. We must race on, but it's very well told. Do you know the story of Noah and the flood? If you've got an NIV, verse 9 of chapter 6 will tell you this is the account of Noah, or in the ESV, these are the generations of Noah. But do you notice verse 8 comes before verse 9, which isn't how I would have written it? That Noah found favour or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then you come to the story of Noah. Why was Noah rescued? Not because he was good. Oh yes, we're told that he's a righteous man, blameless, and walked with God. A little bit like like Enoch. But those phrases are all used of us in the New Testament. It just means he's a believer. Sinful believer, but a believer. Why doesn't God, when God sees that the sinful man of, sinfulness is man is great and we are only evil all the time in verse uh, 6 and 7, why doesn't God zot the whole of creation off? Because he's made a promise to Adam. There's going to be a serpent crusher. So he can't, he can't if he's going to be true to his word. And so Noah and his family are saved through the ark. But straight after, when they come out of the, um, when they come out of the ark, what does, what does Noah do at the end of chapter nine? He goes and gets drunk. And what do two of his, what do, uh, what does uh, one of his three sons do? Sees, his, sees him naked, which we know is a thing of shame, and doesn't cover him up. And goes and blabs to his brothers. Well, the next big theme in the Old Testament or the Bible's development, is the story of um, Abraham's family. Do you know the Old Testament falls into two halves? That makes sense to you? Genesis 1 to 11 is the story of Adam and his family. And Genesis 12 to the end of Malachi, broadly speaking, is the story of Abraham and his family, which, of course, becomes uh, Israel. Now, there are promises made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and the promise is blessing. Let me read chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. That is, I will, I will undo the effects of curse. And this blessing is going to come to all nations of the earth. We've seen in chapters 10 and 11 how the nations have come into being. And God is going to undo the curse and bring blessing to all nations of the earth. And that is the template of what the rest of human history is all about. The rest of human history is all about God fulfilling that promise. 
how he's going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. That's how he's get, it means he's going to undo the effects of curse. And that's the storyline of the rest of the Bible. But Abraham's descendants are not immune from man-made suffering. There's um, the rape. Well, the, just the next thing that happens. Abraham, he's a tow rag. <laughs> There's a famine living in the cursed creation. A famine. Goes to Egypt and then passes his wife off as his sister so that the king of Egypt can have his way with her. It's not a terribly loving thing to do. Abraham's descendants, well, you just see they are a totally dysfunctional family. If you've read the rest of Genesis, it's just dysfunctional. There's, well, Jacob and Esau. They're dysfunctional, aren't they? Yeah. You know the story. Jacob's the mumsy master chef boy. And, um, and Esau's the hunting, shooting and fishing kind of guy. And, you know, one time Esau's out hunting, shooting and fishing. Uh, mumsy boy has um, made some soup. Or a mess of pottage is what you said in the old version. <laughs> a bowl of soup. Got that. It's maybe a nice stew. But he's got a pencil behind his ear and a contract in his back pocket. So when Esau comes and says, I'm famished. I could die. I'm dying of hunger. Out comes the contract. Just a sign here. I'll take your birthright. Jacob and Esau. Joseph and his brothers. Pretty dysfunctional. Judah and Tamar. Pretty grisly stuff. Now, now Abraham's descendants are not immune from suffering from living in the fallen creation or immune from, um, from the kind of man-made suffering, the suffering of sinful hearts. When we come to uh, Moses, we discover w- with Moses in the law that God makes promises that if they are obedient, Genesis 1 and 2 will be brought back. The best place to see that, I should have put this on your handout, the best place to see that is Leviticus 26. Turn to Leviticus 26 and you'll see that um, what's being promised is Eden. Let me read to you from verse 3. This is, we're at Mount Sinai now. The law's being given through Moses to uh, Abraham's descendants, the Hebrews or the Israelites. And he says, if you follow my decrees, verse 3, and are careful to obey my commands, that's if you'll love me, I'll send you rain in its seasons, and the ground will yield its crops, and the trees of the field their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you'll eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. That sounds great, doesn't it? I'll grant peace in the land, and you'll lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I'm doing what happened at Genesis 3. You'll pursue your enemies, and you'll win. I will look on you with favour. I'll make you fruitful, increase your numbers. You will be still eating last year's harvest when you have no have to move it to make space for the new harvest. I'll put my dwelling place. I'll live amongst you. I will walk among you. That's Garden of Eden language. That's uh, verse 11. 
uh, 12 rather. That's a wonderful promise. Notice the but that comes in verse 14. Can you see the but? But if you will not listen to me and carry out these commands, then, well, you can read the curses that are the rest of the chapter. And the question is, this is this. Will Moses and the Israelites, will they obey this deal? And so, have the Garden of Eden restored? Well, if you've read, if you've read anything of the Old Testament... Well, Israel's ongoing obedience. It happens even at Mount Sinai. They build a golden calf. And Aaron, who's Moses' brother and number two, and Aaron's the one who fashions it with a tool, and then he lies about it to Moses and said, <laughs> it just happened. <laughs> that, that is exactly what he says. It just happened. <laughs> you think, you were a lying toad. <laughs> And so there's no way Israel can receive these blessings. They receive something of shadow of them as they go in the promised land, which was meant to be a good place for them to go, but, but they didn't take the land properly as God commanded them to. So they never really enjoyed the promised land as, as, as a good place. David is then promised in 2 Samuel 7, the reference. David's then promised that, that there will be a kingdom that will be ruled by his son or his descendant and there will be rest and there will be no wickedness in the land. But did that come about in David's lifetime? David pretty well broke all the second half of the Ten Commandments, didn't he, in one day? (laughs) There he is, he sees the beautiful bath, having a bath. And he steals her, commits adultery with her, uh, commits murder, as he then has Uriah put at the front of the line. It's a grim story, isn't it? No, David. Ah, well, maybe David's son, Solomon. Now, the Lord knew that there was going to be a king, and he only gave four laws in the law for a king. Only four things a king had to obey. They're all in Deuteronomy 17. He mustn't accumulate a large number of horses. Solomon built cities for his horses. Um, he mustn't accumulate much gold. He received 666 talents of gold per year, which is more gold than there is in the Bank of England. And he got it every year. He shouldn't have accumulated much gold. He should not allow any part of Israel to be ruled by a foreigner. But he gave 26 cities in the north away to Hiram, king of Tyre. And then he was told he must not marry foreign wives. And this is perhaps the best known of the four. As Solomon has 700 wives and 300 porcupines. Oh, concubines. I reckon, a shrewd thing in Solomon's reign would have been in wedding dress manufacturing. <laughs> we had a son get married this, uh, this year, and um, I can't, I'm so glad I didn't have to pay for the wedding dress. A dress that's only going to be worn on one occasion, and it cost over £1,000 for a dress for one, one occasion. What a waste of money. 
sorry, that's been very, can you edit that bit out just in case, just in case my um, children happen to listen to it. No, no. But at one level, it, it's, it, that, would, that should have been what you'd be into. Now, right the way through the Old Testament, we see that, that Israel is still sinful and they continue to live in a cursed world. And the prophets underline that. Um, but they look forward to. The prophets looked forward to, again, a time when Eden would be undone. So, I put this on your references, probably not. Why don't we just flip to Isaiah 35? We have time only for one. We could go to Isaiah 35, you could go to Isaiah 65, you could go to Ezekiel 36, you could go to Joel 3, but Isaiah 35, you'll recognise it. Now, who is old enough to remember singing the chorus of the song that comes from Isaiah 35? You know, therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return. Come, no, not too, you're all too young, aren't you? Da, 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 da. Oh, well. It's only people of a certain generation. It's only us grey tops who can do that, isn't it? Look what's going to happen. They're being told, Isaiah has told the people that they are going to, because of their sinfulness, they're going to go into captivity, into Babylon, which is what happens in the book of Daniel, for example. They're told there's going to be a return from exile. And look what will happen when they return from exile. Verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush, gush forth in the um, wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground, bubbling springs. That's just glorious. But when you get to the end of the Old Testament, that never was fulfilled. Never fulfilled, of course, until, until then we see the coming of Jesus. And at the coming of Jesus, we begin to see these things happen. And when Jesus is physically present, the great enemies of mankind can be gone like with a word. Let me show you that from, say, <clears throat> Mark chapters 4 and 5. You tell me whether you think these are the great enemies of mankind as a result of Genesis 3. The end of Mark chapter 4. Jesus has authority over nature. Here's a natural kind of disaster. It's not because of an individual sin. They're out, they're out on the lake. And a furious squall comes up, verse 37, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus asleep on a cushion. That's a lovely eyewitness detail, isn't it? Asleep on a cushion. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And then Jesus, with astonishing authority, says to the wind and waves, Now, if you try this on the ferry over to France sometime, I'd do it out of the back of the boat where nobody can see you have a go. But have you ever thought to yourself to say to the wind, quiet, be still, or to the waves, down? It's the kind of language you use to a dog, isn't it? It's the kind of thing I say to our, our Millie, quiet, be still. And Jesus can say it to the creation. And notice it was completely calm. Now, I'm not a sailor, but I'm told if there's a big swell in the water... Even when the wind dies down, it takes some considerable time for the water then to go still. Yes. Immediate. Do you think these are the kind of, well, 
the tsunami in Indonesia last, the week before last. We, we, are, we cannot control nature. We cannot control evil. The next episode is, a, is of a, a man who has an evil spirit with him, within him and makes him less than human. They have to chain him. And Jesus comes and says, come out of him. And immediately the man is then seated, clothed and in his right mind. We have no control over evil, do we? Not really. Then you get, um, then you get this girl, Jairus' daughter, and she's dying. It's a story that's then interrupted with this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and who spent all her money on doctors. <laughs> Interesting in Luke's account... Being a doctor, he doesn't mention that bit about spending all the money on doctors, but that's just an interesting detail. And she touches Jesus' clothes, and immediately her bleeding stops. And of course, this interruption means that Jairus' daughter has now died. And Jesus goes and says, little girl, get up. Immediately, she's up. Now, those are the biggest enemies of mankind, aren't they? Natural disasters evil, sickness, and death. And Jesus can deal with them all with a word. That is breathtaking authority. Then Jesus, at the end of the Gospels, comes to die on the cross. And there, as we said this morning, in the, uh, earlier this morning, his death is there to take the judgment that has led to all the suffering. Of course, it means that Jesus knows all about suffering. He suffered more than any of us. So he truly can empathise with us in suffering. Don't mishear me at all this morning to say that suffering is not significant. It's hard. And Jesus has come to deal with it for all eternity. But Jesus' death at the cross actually doesn't stop the pattern of natural disasters or stop the pattern of, um, of sickness and suffering and death and evil. So Jesus alerts us to the fact that it's still going to happen. The apostles and us, they experience it, don't they? Read the book of Acts, still get storms at sea, shipwreck, still get bitten by snakes, Still all those kind of things happen, and they're still happening now, because this is in the church age. Jesus, who has risen and ascended, empathises with us, and Paul, when he has his thorn in the flesh, if you remember, says three times he prayed for his thorn in the flesh to be taken away. Now, we're not absolutely sure what that thorn was. I don't think it was his mother-in-law. I think it's almost certainly something physical. Three times he prays that the Lord God would take that thorn away from him. And three times the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, in other words picking up the language from the Garden of Eden and picking up the language of Israel in the wilderness, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 can say, 
God does not allow us to be tempted beyond our capacity. No temptation comes to man that is not common to man. And he always provides a way out from it. How kind. Well, the next question you might ask is, well, wouldn't it have been nice if, if the day I became a Christian, that the Lord God, using some kind of Star Trek transporter, just zapped me, you know, st- took me straight up to, to, to glory? Wouldn't that be terrific? But the trouble with that is that you wouldn't be able to demonstrate faith. And faith is what we must demonstrate in order to receive the blessing. So he doesn't take a zap straight up. He allows us to live in a fallen world. He allows us to experience suffering. And, and you know, we get another kind of suffering. We get persecuted for being believers. So actually Christians suffer more than the non-Christian. It's a a whole new dimension to suffering for us. But he gives us grace and he's allowing us to demonstrate our faith, our trust in him. And the good news is that one day, well, it will be like Eden restored. It's the day when the Lord Jesus comes back. It's the day when those who are not his are sentenced to eternity in the burning lake of sulphur at the end of Revelation 20. And when a new creation comes in Revelation chapter 21. Let me read Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4. These are glorious verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with man. We'll see the living God face to face. And because God's there and his son is on the throne there, well, all of the things that are man's biggest enemies are gone. And so in verse um, verse, uh, 3, verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. If it's not too corny, the three H's are not going to be there. Notice there will be no more hankies because he'll wipe away every tear. There's going to be no no sadnesses, no disappointments, no frustrations. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. No hankies, no hearses. Because there'll be no more death. And there'll be no more hospitals. Because there'll be no pain. What a wonderful thought. There will be no doctors and nurses in the new creation. Sorry, there will be doctors and nurses there, but they won't be practising as doctors and nurses in the new creation. Isn't that a wonderful thought? So my, my bad back will have got sorted. My ever, ever worsening eyesight is going to get sorted. I, I'm not sure, but I'm wondering whether I might get a new bit of hair, and that might get sorted too. But we, we laugh, but... 
But these are the big enemies of mankind, and we're not going to experience them in this new creation. In fact, what we will do in this new creation is spelt out at the beginning of chapter 22. We will have access to the tree of life again. That was guarded, we were guarded from back in Genesis 3. It's a tree of life that's always in fruit. It yields its crops 12 times a year. The leaves of this tree are for healing. Healing of the nations, I think that means healing of the brokenness between peoples. There's no longer any curse. It's only blessing. And what will we do? We'll serve Jesus. He's in the city. We'll see his face. And we, with him, will reign or rule forever and ever. That is, we'll do what we were created in the garden to do. That's what mankind was created in the garden to do, was to rule the creation. And here, a new creation for us to rule with Jesus forever and ever and ever in a place where it's only good all the time. Now, deep down, you should be aching for that. Deep down, you should be longing for it. Deep down, you should be saying, hooray, come, Lord Jesus, come. If you've got the vision of the end and seen its contrast with what's come before in terms of suffering, you ought to be aching for this new creation. So, in our last minute... Why does a good God allow suffering? Why does a good God allow suffering? Shall I tell you? It's very short. Because he's good. Because he's good. Let me just unpack that, flesh that out a little more so that you can see it. What could God have done when Adam and Eve took the fruit and ate it? So it doesn't matter. And then... He would be lying and you wouldn't want him as your God. You'd never know where you were with him, would you? He said, you're going to die. Well, if you <laughs> What could he have done? Well, he could have zotted Adam and Eve off. That's a theological phrase. He could have got rid of Adam and Eve and left his perfect creation perfect. Yes? When you come through the Old Testament, you discover that sinful people cannot live in the presence of a holy God. Just read some of the stuff on the tabernacle and the most holy of holies and you'll discover that. We cannot live in the presence, sinful people can't live in the presence of a holy God. So what could God do is get rid of sinful people and kept his holy, his, himself as holy in the holy place he's made. He could have done that. But he doesn't. Instead, he curses the creation, or Romans 8, subjects it to frustration. He curses the creation so that sinful people can carry on living. And why does he want sinful people to carry on living? Because he's got a plan to redeem you, to restore you, and ultimately do that because that's the way he will glorify his son Jesus. So he makes Jesus the firstborn amongst many sons. So he brings us into relationship with himself so that that can be for the glory of his son. And that's why suffering now 
is actually part of his goodness or his kindness. Because he's always had a plan of how he's going to bring it all to restoration, to recreation, so that you and I can live with Jesus forever and ever and ever. Isn't that good of him? Profoundly good. So when you hear the question, why does a good God allow suffering? Well, the assumed answer is he either can't do anything about it, so he's not really God, or he doesn't want to do anything about it. He's not really kind or good. But he's both good and in control. And that's why although suffering is difficult and hard, and you'll know people who suffered, or you've suffered yourself, it's actually, it's all part of his kindness, and there's coming a future where it'll all be gone. Andy, I'm done. It's just gone quarter past. If you want to ask, you can ask a question if you'd like to. And that's just, that's just a biblical theology of taking you through the whole of the scriptures to see how suffering works. No? Okay, shall I pray? It's hard to say no to that one, isn't it? <laughs> Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know what you're doing. Thank you that you have always had a plan to bring, to bring us as your children to a new creation around the throne in worship and reigning the new creation with the Lord Jesus forever and ever. We pray for perhaps people even here now who know the acute nature of suffering. And we pray that you would grant them grace to cope and grant them faith to keep trusting you. And we pray that would be true for all of us until we come to that place around the throne. Give us safe travel home now wherever we're going and give us a great day with your people tomorrow, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.